What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica, and on this week's show, I'm joined by the whole crew, Brenda, Shreen, Amira, and Lindsay. It's been a hell of a week. We are recording this on Sunday, January 10th, four days after a Trump-incited insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., but it was also the week when two Democrats won Senate seats in Georgia, and historically conservative state for a whole host of reasons, but especially because of racism and voter suppression. So in this week's show, we're going to talk once again about the intersection of sports and politics, this current moment of athlete activism, with most of our focus on the Atlanta Dream, the WNBA, and the election of Reverend Raphael Warnock to the U.S. Senate. Yes, sing all the praises and do all of that, but do it in a way that is grounded in humanity, that isn't making them objects of like magic. Um, Then we'll burn things that deserve to be burned. Highlight the torchbearers who are giving us hope during this dark time let you know what's good in our world, and tell you what we're watching this week. But first, before we get into all of that, it is 2021. Happy New Year! (laughs) I feel like it's a question at this point. Uh, (laughs) I thought we'd start off, do you all do resolutions, and do you have any for this year? Shereen. I've decided in this fabulous My Birthday Month to rest and what I'd always been doing is like take a break, take a breather. I've decided to fully commit to rest time, whatever that looks like for me in the moment. I don't like walking, but like I need fresh air. So whatever, whatever that looks like, just sitting outside, sitting outside, like just <laughs> breathing, um, paint by numbers. I'm a big fan now. So stuff like that, just taking time to rest physically, emotionally and mentally. That sounds lovely. Lindsay. I want to be bold this year or just I feel like I spent a lot of this last year in my head and I, you know, I launched, you know, a, a new, you know, I'm launching a business and this year I just want to be braver and bolder and keep doing things that make me uncomfortable um, and pushing through that discomfort. Uh, I don't know if that's a resolution, but it's kind of just like my theme for this year. That's awesome. Amira. Yeah, um, I don't know if I really think about resolutions now mostly because my brain thinks that the year is like an academic one so like my real new year is like the late august sure but um i do try to like do a reset each semester and like i'm not just talking about the like three new planners plus a digital planner that i buy because i think it will make me like magically more organized um but to reset my intentions and i know this semester has a lot going on in it for me so my guiding intention of this like mid-year reset is having grace for myself because things are stressful enough without like beating yourself up on top of it yeah kindness for yourself that's such a ongoing goal I feel that Brenda Mm, normally I make resolutions but this year everything (laughs) seems really hard yes so I feel like just getting by 
is enough of an accomplishment. So I'm not going to, I, you know, I don't want to set the bar too high. And kind of on top of that, like getting by for me means like deciding to be in a good mood most of the time. Like just making that decision. Like like it's, yeah, like you're just going to, you know, sometimes I just wake up and I'm like, you're just going to be in a good mood, bitch. Like that's just <laughs> what's going to happen. Um, you know, you're not going to wait for like good stuff to happen today because. Who knows? It likely will. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow, I like all of yours, and I want to, like, just take them all. I have a really concrete one. I, in the last few years, have been doing a baking thing, like a thing I want to do that year for baking. And this year is I want to get better and more comfortable with pie. That's, like, my one big resolution. So I recently bought Erin McDowell's The Book on Pie, Everything You Need to Know to Bake Perfect Pie. So, Erin, she better come through for me. (laughs) So... We'll see. Follow me on Instagram if you want to see how that goes. WNBA players have been wearing shirts to protest in Atlanta Dream co-owner. Players on the Chicago Sky, Phoenix Mercury, and Dream wearing Vote Warnock shirts on Tuesday night in support of voting against the Dream's co-owner, Senator Kelly Loeffler. Our latest 11 Allies survey USA polls shows Democratic newcomer Reverend Raphael Warnock leading over Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler. The election now make a projection in one of the two Georgia Senate runoffs. CNN will now project that Democrat Raphael Warnock is elected to the U.S. Senate. On Tuesday, Georgia went to the polls for two Senate runoffs and ended up electing two Democrats, John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, flipping the Senate to the Democrats. Warnock's name is one we've said a lot on Burn It All Down because he was running against Kelly Loeffler, a Trump-supporting Republican who has co-owned the WNBA's Atlanta Dream since 2010. I went back and I checked, and Lindsay was the first person to mention Loeffler on Burn It All Down when she threw her on the burn pile back in December of 2019 on episode 136 saying, and I quote Lindsay Gibbs, every single thing I learn about her is more infuriating than the last. <laughs> <laughs> but Loeffler showed up in plenty of discussions this summer after she went after the WNBA's support of Black Lives Matter and Say Her Name. In response, the Dream and the rest of the league, the players, decided to put their support behind Warnock and did so without ever mentioning Leffler's name. At the end of July, Warnock was polling at only 9%, with Leffler at 26%, and even a different Democrat at 14%. On August 4th, the Dream and the Phoenix Mercury wore shirts that read, Vote Warnock, before their nationally televised matchup on ESPN. Two days later, Warnock's camp contacted LaChina Robinson and told her, quote, since players from the WNBA wore their Vote Warnock shirts on Tuesday, the campaign raised over $185,000 online, added over 3,500 new grassroots donors, and grew his Twitter followers by 3,500. The players continued to back him right up through his election on Tuesday. I think it's safe to say we've never seen this kind of collective organizing in sports in the United States, and it worked. But this is a bigger story than sports and one that goes much further back than just this summer. Amira? Yeah, absolutely. This is a story for me that's fueled by the tenacity of Black women and the WNBA joined with and became an extension of a Black organizing tradition that together fueled this win. And we are obviously a sports podcast, so we will be talking more about the W in this segment, but I really wanted to take a moment to acknowledge these grassroots and please permit me a minute to underscore the significance of this win. 
We're talking about the state of Georgia, where like so many Southern states, Black folks have only really had the ability to vote for 55 years. In the 1960s, Black voter registration in the state was held in the single digits due to state-sanctioned terror and suppression. Black organizers, led by Black women such as Anel Ponder, risked life and limb, endured beatings and bombings to try to register people to vote and push for the Voter Rights Act of 1965. After this act was gutted in, in 2016, Latasha Brown and Cliff Albright founded Black Voters Matter, traveling by bus around the South to turn out the vote and combat voter suppression on the ground. When in 2018, after voter suppression cost Stacey Abrams the gubernatorial election, Abrams dedicated her energy to this same cause, joining forces with Black Voters Matter, with the New Georgia Project, and together it's where these organizers helped to register over 800,000 Black voters in just the past two years. And can I just say I'm so happy that Burn It All Down and many of you flamethrowers joined with us and participated in the Women Run Their Vote relay in September that helped um, raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to support their efforts. Because on election day, over 1 million Black voters helped turn Georgia blue. And on Tuesday night, they increased their turnout over that to secure the Senate and electing Reverend Warnock, who became only the 11th Black senator ever, ever in this country and the first Black Democrat elected from the South. I mean, it's it's. I almost don't have words to talk about how special this is. And Reverend Warnock himself is emblematic of Georgia. He's a Morehouse man. He's a preacher at Ebenezer Baptist, which is the same pulpit King preached from. It's such a significant place um, in the city. And like Warnock helping people to gather there and mourn and protest um, the killing of Rashad Brooks back in June or facilitating the late Senator John Lewis's homegoing over the summer as well. And my word, thinking about Senator Lewis and C.T. Vivian, Georgia Titans lost this past year, who must be joyous together looking at this occasion. And um, here's Latasha telling NPR a little bit more of why Warnock uh, is so important and what his victory represents. I am extremely excited about him winning because of what he represents. He represents black Southerners that against the odds, that in a space that has been the home for the Confederacy, the space that has been the root, right, for white supremacy and white nationalists, that where the Southern strategy was born, that there is a new Southern strategy that is being implemented, that is being fueled and engined by people of color and black folks are on the vanguard. So yeah, it's pretty damn special. And to have the WNBA be such a significant part of this story, to be interfacing and joining with these historic Black institutions, with this history, with this organizing tradition, um, it's pretty, pretty special. And I think absolutely right that Black Black folks, especially Black women, from the WNBA to Latasha to Stacey and all of the organizers are absolutely the vanguard. Thank you, Amira. And there is like the dream doing this and following the lead of the organizers on the ground, especially Stacey Abrams, is particularly sweet. Lindsay, please tell us about that. Yeah, there are a couple of connections that I wrote about in Power Plays that to me just symbolize how the dream weren't just kind of swooping in, like they're kind of an integral part of Atlanta. First of all, Stacey Abrams along with um, former WNBA commissioner Lisa Borders, were actually integral in getting the WNBA franchise into Atlanta in the first place, which I just think is just like 
incredible synergy um, in the power plays last week. I found a news article and I literally squealed when I saw Stacey Abrams being quoted in this article from 2008 um, about the significance of bringing the dream to Atlanta. And then there's also this symmetry of the dream being named after Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And then, of course, Warnock being the senior uh, pastor at the church where Martin Luther King was a pastor as well. There was some synergy here and it, it's, it's powerful. But Amir is totally right that it's these grassroots organizers on the ground are the true heroes of this story. Shreen, you have a dream for... Raphael Warnock, yes? I do. I actually, the first thing I thought was I would really love for Senator Warnock to be sworn in wearing an orange WNBA hoodie, which is like yes. the hottest like piece of clothing item. I'm like, I'm no Anna Wintour, but seriously, everybody's got to have one of those. Yeah, and I think that's, I love the, I just imagining that uh, is so fun. Um but I, I want to go from here, and Shreen, I want to think more broadly about this for a few minutes, about what we saw from the WNBA this summer and this electoral success for Warnock. What was your big takeaway here? Well, one of the things that I think I've been ranting about for years is just sort of this idea within sports media, and particularly held by gatekeepers, that sports is not political and there's no space for writing about it in a political manner, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is a bunch of bollocks. But I think one of the things that's really key here is the way that we write about it, the way that is written. And I'm really glad Jesse went back to look at the way it's being done. And notably our own very own Lindsay Gibbs was one of the first to actually talk about it. I think this is really important because we're seeing a trend in sports media and albeit being published too quickly of people refuting this and trying to create those bridges and, and, and strengthen those gaps actually about what sports can be and it's a refusal and a rejection of the real and the very raw and the very now and I hate that like even recently a Canadian columnist who's like an absolute pitiful person just wrote something about it again to reiterate and it's no I'm sorry, we reject that and I also feel that in addition to the athlete activism and the strong black women that I hope that sports media is paying attention in the right ways. I'm sorry, it's snowing. I have to get my shit together. I knew it was snowing when you looked out the window. I'm like, that face. Oh, gross, though. I'm not going out. Do you want to run outside and feel it on no. your face? No, it's wet. <laughs> it's so pretty, It's though. beautiful, <laughs> Jess. Do you have mittens okay, and a hat? Okay. All right. I totally agree, Shireen. We should bury that fiction like six feet under the ground. Finally, please. I feel like that's lesson number one. Amira, you have another lesson for us and also kind of maybe a word of caution about this. Absolutely, which deals with other fictions, um, mostly black women as superhero fanfic that uh, tends to be the kind of pendulum swing from what Shireen's talking about, but regurgitates quite Quickly after these moments, you already see it with Stacey Abrams, and I'm worried that the WNBA um, and the Atlanta Dream specifically might fall into the same thing. And what I'm talking about here is this kind of treatment where all of a sudden for like a day and a half on Twitter, it's like, thank a black woman in your life, hug a black woman, like, like black women are superheroes, they're magic. And, um, you know, I've saw too many memes of like Stacey Abrams fighting Thanos and Endgame and like... And so I saw a tweet that was like, people rather write fanfic about Stacey Abrams and Thanos than like actually thinking and investing in the Black women like her in their own networks. Um, and I think that, you know, yes, 
sing all the praises and do all of that, but do it in a way that is grounded in humanity, that isn't making them objects of like magic um, and that like relies on them to do the work. Um, and that comes with sustained support and a sustained investment, a sustained engagement and listening um, from these organizers to the league and everything in between. And the Black women in your life who you're talking over to talk about this mythical creation you've made in your head is the other kind of, um, you know, thing to guard against. And so it's kind of like, being, you know, having looking both ways um, and having that caution. And I think sometimes overexcitement can toe that line. Um, and so it would be great if we just like reeled it back a little. Yeah, I saw someone say like, there's a Stacey Abrams in your PTA and you're not listening to her. Um, Absolutely. And Lindsay, we can learn something here from the dream in this way, right? Like they weren't just saviors who like swooped in, right? Yeah, I mean, they plugged into the activist groups on the ground. Of course, as athletes, they're getting um, a certain level of attention, but they're leveraging, you know, they're leveraging that to help these groups on the ground that are doing the work. As Amira said, um, in my conversation with Elizabeth Williams, which you all, it will come out on Thursday with Elizabeth Williams of the dream. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about how just exactly what Amira was saying. And, and I think it's that they you hold up these people as heroes almost to absolve yourself of doing anything. Right. Saying like, well, we need just, you know, it'll when is the Stacey Abrams going to come in and save North Carolina? Well, what are you doing to save North Carolina? You know, what are you doing? Um, you know, things like that. Uh, so. Uh, you know, I do have to give the Dream Players credit for plugging into the groups on the ground, doing the work, and also for not abandoning this campaign or this cause the second the WNBA season was over. As we all know, a lot of these players uh, went abroad or in all corners of the world, but you know, um, Elizabeth Williams has continued to do PSAs. Um, you've had uh, Tiffany Hayes, who didn't play this summer, registering voters in the gym she owns in Atlanta. Um, you've had, of course, Renee Montgomery, who also took the summer off from the Dream and the WNBA, um, you know, doing work on the ground everywhere. You've had WNBA workers become poll workers. You have Brianna Stewart, um, have Warnock on her podcast uh, just in the last couple of weeks to try and do a last push. So the WNBA players have continued, particularly those in Atlanta, I think I've been very impressed at how they've continued to stay engaged in this campaign. It wasn't just this one photo op. Okay, so sports are political. Do the work collectively with those on the ground, the already established networks. And also... I think we can learn from what the WNBA did about the importance of unionization and collective labor action. Like, I mean, this seems incredibly important. And Linz, am I right that the WNBA itself has a model for how to act collectively here? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, this is also about the power of labor right, and organizing. And I think and we've talked about this on the show before, but the WNBA unionized right out the gate when the league was founded. I think it was its second year in 1999 when it formed a union. That means that this union has had decades now to continue to build and to continue to solidify. 
um, to work on communication structures within each other. Um, we really saw this start to pay um, off in the activism space in 2016 when the players wore Black Lives Matter shirts and um, the league fined them. The players, there was a player rep for each team and there had always been a player rep for each team, but you started to see these communication um, structures join, right? From the players association to the players reps to the team. And this way of communication um, that I think helped solidify things then when they were working on their collective bargaining agreement and trying to get that together. Um, there was so much talk during that and that really helped them not only with communication, but with problem solving and with realizing that everybody's not going to be on the same page all the time, figuring out how to deal with that, figuring out how to have these hard conversations, figuring out how to have space for everyone. This is tough work. Like this is just like the ins and outs day to day. You know, not everybody was on the same page right out the gate with this. And the reason they were able to do that is because they've been doing that work amongst itself for years. And I think you see in other leagues when they try to overnight arrange something like this and you see they're not successful. So the WNBA was ready for this moment because of all the work they had done beforehand. And Bren, I love listening to you talk about unionization in general. So can you tell us like what the benefits of the unions are within sport and maybe what it would be like if sports was partnering with a larger labor movement. Right. So it's always annoyed me that unionization efforts in sports are so fractured that in an ideal world, the NBA and the WNBA would have the same union so that the women could use the power of the men's sport like they've started to do in global football. So the benefits of unionization should be that you use the power of your labor to protect the most vulnerable among you. Unfortunately, that's not always the way it works, particularly when you have agents and you have um, sponsors and you have a lot of forces working against that. I would love for sports to kind of teach people more generally about labor unions, which in the United States in a very, very concerted way has been purposefully forgotten. I mean, union rates are way down. I think it's about 10% right now down from about 20% in the 1980s, down from about 40% in the 1950s. Oh, wow. And that's no accident, right? That's neoliberalism at work in the United States. And so most people just absolutely don't even understand what a union does. You know, and you've seen right to work states and all of this legislation passed that almost makes it illegal, you know, to be in a union in the South. And that's absolutely related to being able to exercise your political rights. So you have political rights and then you have social rights, which are different kind of concepts there. And what a union does is give you access to being able to demand other kinds of rights on the basis that you have this power of banded labor together. Yeah. But I think it's a sorry, I'm so sorry. No, I just think just it's really go. important to also underscore that unions in and of themselves are like it has to be with the right causes and with the right thing. Because one of the one functioning powerful unions that we do have in this country is the police union, which is incre- the police unions are incredibly harmful. And so I think that the points Brenda make are so important to think about unions, but it would also allow us to think about how union and organized labor within unions are wheel the power is wielded. Well, and and that is what we call public sector union. And actually, African American rates of belonging to public sector unions are much higher, including the police 
So, so yeah, there's a lot of questions about this. And I think given the way that athlete activism has gone and what you've all talked about, there's a great opportunity for them to kind of show what a progressive union looks like. And of course, the UAW was, you know, searingly racist and imperialist in the 1950s. And so part of making a good union is not being co-opted by the bosses. And that's what's happened. And that's why mm. there's a disintegration of the entire structure. And that's interesting because it's also... Like what Amir was saying, thank you. That was just so good. I feel like I just like learned so much in that few minutes. Um, but you have to also like what working collectively really only has merits if you're going towards something useful, right? Amir, I mean, there are clearly limits to athlete activism. Like one wonders what would have happened if the Hawks and the Dream had been uh, together and how that would have limited maybe <laughs> what we would have seen actually from the players. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, Tuesday showed both the possibility and limits of athletic activism. Um, like in the morning, we obviously had this model from the WNBA. By the afternoon, we were facing an insurrection, and the NBA had to figure out what the hell to do. And at first, the Celtics said they might not play, and then they came out and decided to play. They released a joint statement saying that they were troubled and they didn't really want to play, but they ultimately decided it would be good to maybe give some people entertainment. You saw, you know, people kneel. You saw the Raptors and the Suns, like, do a kumbaya intertwined arm circle. And in the face of insurrection, it, to me, just, like, underscored the absolute limits of these kind of performative things. It didn't ease anybody's mind to watch a basketball game because who could who could do that in the middle of an insurrection? Holding arms and linking, maybe you guys feel more together, but that was, it, it's a performative thing. And I think for me, it was so interesting because one of the big things that I kept seeing an image of was the continued currency of Kaepernick as a stand-in symbolic image for the last four years of athletic activism. And it was specifically being juxtaposed with the seditious acts of these rioters to talk about what forms of protest and response and things like that. And I think the the symbolism and the symbolic importance of athletic activism obviously still has currency. That's, that's what that meme of Kaepernick points to, is that there's still clear currency with athletic activism. There's still the platform. Because there's, we got breaking news alerts every time these NBA teams did something, but they weren't doing anything, actually. And I think, to me, that's, um, that's the tension. And how can you continue to push past that symbolic currency? Well, the WNBA has certainly given a blueprint. But it also seems that one of the things that we have dealt with and seen over the year is not necessarily the rise of athletic activism, but the rise of performative athletic activism. And I think trying to parse through that as we move forward is going to be essential. Yeah. And it's an interesting time to be talking about all this because as we're going into 2021, we're going to see this, right? It's going to continue. And we're about to have a huge platform this summer, which is the Olympics, right? Which we know and we've talked about a lot on the show as a place where this this happens, right? Where we see sports and politics come together. So I'm wondering about this upcoming year and sort of where we are going with this. Brenda, do you have hopes for activism from athletes this year and maybe beyond that? Um, yeah, I mean, again, like, I'd like to see all of this energy and dynamism 
translate into real structures and changing structures, you know, that can be enduring and ongoing. And labor unions for me are still, you know, a prime vehicle to get out of two party thinking, you know, let them woo you, let these politicians woo you. We're going to see a real center right government. And, you know, that's that's, you know, better than fascism. But um, you know, but the, we're yes. going to actual literal fascism, actual literal fascism. <laughs> like we're just barely escaping that. Like, eh. so I'd like to see that. I'd love to see the dream go hard on the dream act. Atlanta has a ton of undocumented immigrants that could really be great voters. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. You think about that, like in Houston or like, yeah, there's a lot of space Mm -hmm. there for a lot Mm -hmm. of good activism. Um, This has been, I think, super fair to say, a very U.S. centric discussion of politics and athletes, which makes sense, I think, especially this week and everything we saw. But what does it look like, Shereen, if we look in a more broad way, in a more international way at athlete activism at, at this point in time. Well, we've certainly spoken about the history of sports activism globally on this show and, and in different ways, whether it's striking, whether it's labor solidarity. But there's ways that we have also featured, you know, black, indigenous, racialized groups everywhere. But it's going to continue, seeing as the U.S. recently is banned on peaceful protest in the Olympics, where previously it was not that. But if we do step away from this American model, I think we have to keep in mind what the idea of freedom of expression is. I mean, what that is termed at and defined at in the global South is incredibly different if if it exists at all. So the way that athletes would be able to protest, let's say in Turkey or Iran, is completely different than what they would be do. And, And I think we need to ease our expectations as well, because we can't approach something like this at a global event and have this expectation or this idea that everyone expression and everyone's resistance and disruption just doesn't look the same and it is not the same and I think we have to keep that in mind bearing the parameters of what they're able to do safely just for example we've talked about women in stadiums in Iran here they can't be public at all so it doesn't mean that Iranian athletes don't support their movements they're just not able to do so publicly without retribution in their home country and I think this is something we really need to keep in mind as we appreciate and amplify athlete activism. Yeah, that is such an important point. Thank you, Shireen. Amira? Yeah, I just wanted to highlight, um, as Shireen brings up those points, to remind you that I spoke with Tiana Bartoletta um, on episode 169, who has talked about the organizing efforts that she's done with global track and field athletes, and which kind of gestures to the point that Brenna was talking about, about figuring out a way for unionization to cross over and make connections. And so I'll be really interested at the Olympics, too, to see how global track and field athletes from multiple countries are continuing to organize and interface together, and if that formalizes into more uh, more durable global union effort from all these kind of fragmented national ones. This week's interview, which drops on Thursday, could not be more timely. Lindsay talks with Elizabeth Williams of the Atlanta Dream about why WNBA players endorsed Senator-elect Raphael Warnock last summer, what the players group chat looked like when the Senate flipped, and how she felt watching last week's events unfold while playing abroad in Turkey. Yeah, there's one teammate I talk to more than most when it comes to like political stuff. 
And so Wednesday morning when I walked in, I had a big smile on my face and she was like, is this about all that political stuff you're always posting? And I was like, yeah, Warnock won, like this is huge. And then the next morning <laughs> I walked in and we looked at each other and, and I was like, well, this is the other side of all of this. <laughs> so it's really wild and it's scary, you know, like that it just shouldn't happen. And I think it's a big reality check for a lot of people. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. On top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only $15 a month. The same rate as any other hosting site would charge you. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For just the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience acceptance into the program is limited so get your application in today to apply go to bwhustle.com join check out the description box for this episode to find out more but that's bwhustle.com join this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. 
It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com slash burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment that we like to call the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Shireen, what are you burning? We all know how much I love the FA Women's Super League in the UK. What I'm really upset about right now, and just in case people forgot, we're still in a pandemic. And basically, Arsenal women, Manchester United women, certain amount of players from each team. From what we know thus far, it was actually Kate McKay from Arsenal women's side that I love normally. They went off to Dubai. They went off to Dubai, which was created as a travel corridor between the UK. They went off to Dubai for a happy Christmas celebration, not because the family was there, because they wanted a holiday. Now, what ended up happening was two of the players from the Everton trio, which has not fully been released, but we have suspicions, DM me later. And to find out who it was, they brought COVID back to the UK. Amazing, right? What ended up happening was matches at West Ham and Aston Villa actually had to be postponed. And this is a whole bunch of bullshit because, like I said, we're in a pandemic. I was furious about this because there are players that are not seeing their families and are staying at home, and now the matches had to be canceled. Just yesterday, The Guardian reported that Casey Stoney, Manchester United manager, actually came forward and apologized, and she's henceforth the first manager to actually take accountability for this. And she says it was a huge grave error in judgment, and she actually allowed her players to do this. And she's just like, well, wait a minute, you know, I do apologize, and this was my bad and stuff, and I do appreciate Casey Stoney doing this, but I'm sorry, these are grown-ass women. And stay the fuck at home. I hadn't said this publicly before, but my son tested COVID positive in December and it was incredibly stressful. We don't go anywhere. We barely see family and friends. This was to do this, to have these women as role models that are on the one hand. I get that you make mistakes, but mistakes like this are egregious. I'm sorry. I need y'all to own it and I need y'all to do the fuck better. Burn. 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 That was a really good first burn of 2021. I got to say, you really brought it there, Shereen. All right, Brenda, what is on your burn pile? Deep breath. Okay. 
After scoring a late goal for Manchester United over Southampton on November 29th, Edson Cavani, a football player now for Manchester United, longtime PSG, received congratulations from his friend Pablo Fernandez, who has gone his entire life by the nickname Negrito. He congratulated Cavani via Instagram, to which Cavani used the nickname. I don't really want to say it again. Social media responded swiftly, and Cavani took the post down immediately and apologized profusely. The English FA, quite notoriously racist, gave Cavani one of the harshest punishments that we've seen for an individual player, a three-match ban and a $125,000 fine. Ask yourself where that money goes. Cavani was supported by a video statement provided to the commission that has investigated this by Pablo Fernandez, who stated his lifelong nickname was that, and he took no offense. The commission was also showed copies of private WhatsApp messages between Fernandez and Cavani, which illustrated his own use of the term and that basically Cavani knew him by no other name. Okay, that we don't, we don't need to agree with that, with, with that logic. The Uruguayan National Academy of Letters called the decision ignorant and Comebol and the South American governing body has lodged a complaint against the English FA. So at the end of the day, racial justice advocates in Latin America who have long struggled with this for decades, while tackling head-on police brutality, employment discrimination, etc., now have to deal with this. You know, it's just making their fight harder. So with the British Bulldogs and the China Shop, their work becomes that much harder. Cavani did not argue the sanction, and if it generates more discussion and change, I think that's great and wonderful. And in recognition of historic anti-blackness, let's not use that term anymore to call her loved ones. I think we can all agree on that. But the English FA should take a hard look in the mirror. You might have invented football, but Cavani's perfected it, and it's not a global language. It's a polyglot. It's not your game. Stop making it more difficult for grassroots advocates to do their work by being arrogant and obnoxious or use Spanish um, correctly and learn the language if you're going to make those arguments. So I want to burn everybody involved, basically, metaphorically, <laughs> with this entire shit show, and um, especially for complicating the work of racial justice in Latin America. Burn. 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 Every year, I'm annoyed at the people who get upset at college football players who decide to sit out of bowl games. Bowl games, which are essentially exhibition games for coaches, universities, and conferences to make more money. Choosing to preserve the health of one's body over and above a game that doesn't ultimately matter is a good one, in my opinion. And I believed that before we were in a global pandemic. The college football season was ridiculous during COVID, an incredibly cynical money-making scheme that was extra dangerous for all involved. Also, I imagine a mentally taxing thing to be a part of, especially as a player. Uh, lots of people on social media, including those in sports media, were so angry when Boston College's team, supported by their coach, decided to skip the bowl game altogether. I think they had a losing record. They were five and six, and people were still like, how dare you not play in a bowl game? Pitt soon followed, and then lots of individual players, just as we saw when this season initially started up. This eventually prompted Gerald McCoy, an NFL veteran, to tweet, quote, Man, what's up with all these kids opting out of their bowl games? I understand before the season, but your last bowl game? You've grinned all this time with your brothers, and you say on the last game, nah, I'm done. I don't know who's advising these kids, but it's whack to me. I'll let Arian Foster, who retired in 2016 from the NFL, end this burn pile with his response to McCoy, quote, 
Kids are starting to realize it's a business and their body is the product. NCAA has brainwashed fans and players that winning one for the Gipper is admirable. It isn't. Fuck them. Take care of yourself, youngins. Stop policing the decisions of these non-unionized, unpaid, exploited players, especially during a pandemic, but mainly in general. Burn. 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 Lindsay, what are you burning? So uh, last week, um, you know, the day after the Georgia special election, uh, there was an armed insurrection of the Capitol building incited by President Donald Trump. People died. It could have been a lot worse. These were white supremacists, full stop, who were trying to murder leaders of the government. And uh, our president got on camera and said that he loved them and that he understood them. About 12 hours after Trump's address, two golfers, Annika Sornstam and Gary Player, arrived at the White House. They were the first people to meet with Trump after the insurrection to receive their Presidential Medal of Freedom. I really and truly have no words for how abominable it is to show up at the White House for this ceremonial, really fucking meaningless award the day after the coup. Like, I just don't have any words. Um, Sorenstam was an idol of mine growing up. Golf was one of the first sports I got into, and she was a legend on the LPGA Tour. She played against the men at some points and was really one of the first female athlete trailblazers I got to know when I was younger. And to see this is absolutely, positively, mind-bogglingly infuriating. Her Twitter account uh, has been silent since January 5th. The last tweets she sent are quote tweets thanking people for congratulating her on getting the Medal of Freedom. Nothing since then. There have also been no public photos released of this day. No reporters were allowed in. It was done in silence or as Christine Brennan wrote in USA Today, it was done in shame. If you can't get your Presidential Medal of Freedom, um, if you're too ashamed to tweet about it or to have pictures released or to have reporters there, then maybe you shouldn't fucking accept it. <laughs> like, just don't go. Don't validate this man with your presence. It's a fucking medal. It doesn't matter. But you, by showing up, are validating him you were validating his power you were validating his ego and you were validating his administration like i can't even i know there's so much to get mad about and so much more serious stuff to get mad about but i just don't understand how you show up to receive that medal on january 6th i guess all i can do is throw it on the burn pile burn burn burn, burn. all right amira what do you want to torch 
So I was going to burn the UT Chattanooga football coach who called Stacey Abrams Fat Albert and other disgusting things in a public Facebook post, but he's been fired. <laughs> so the school handled that for me. Uh, so instead, I'm going to turn my attention back to the Burn Pals favorite football coach, who in a short time has been such a frequent guest to our burn pile. Um, and I'm talking about Tommy fucking Tuberville, uh, who has just been elected to the Senate and voted to object to the electors in Arizona and Pennsylvania, a failed desperate effort to overturn the will of the people in a free and fair election. Um, he voted this way after witnessing the insurrection when even Kelly Loeffler changed her damn vote. We shouldn't be surprised, though, because he parrots Trump's every word and not just his words, his actions like fundraising for a, quote, election defense fund, probably because he watched Trump rake in one hundred and seventy million dollars in just November alone this way. But Tuberville's donation link to said election defense fund is actually a donation to his own campaign <laughs> that was already over by the time he sent this link out. What's more, it seems like he was Trump and Giuliani's go to person as they were trying to use these rallies and riots as delaying tactics to thwart democracy. Trump called him earlier at the wrong number, which is how we know they spoke, because he called Senator Mike Lee instead, who walked with the phone to give it to his colleague. And because they're idiots and seemingly can't get the number right, we also know this because Giuliani tried to call Tuberville, instead called Mike Lee and left a message that we have the audio of. Senator Tuberville, or I should say Coach Tuberville, this is Rudy Giuliani president's lawyer. I'm calling you because I want to discuss with you how they're trying to rush this hearing. And there you can hear Rudy asking Tommy Tuberville to help them delay, delay, delay by objecting to electors in 10 different seats. This was at the same time as the insurrection was unfolding, as people were losing their lives, as the lives of Capitol staffers were in danger as the lives of of government workers were in danger. And as amusing as the tweets at Tuberville are that say, hey, look, Tommy Tuberville got sewn in and already the Capitol's defense is falling apart. It's very serious. The executive branch, Trump with the aid of folks like Tuberville, incited a, a riot. They refused to call in help to secure the Capitol. They tried to use the time to get willing senators like Tuberville to delay certifications of a duly elected president in order to prevent a peaceful transfer of power. This is a literal attempt at a coup. Lindsay's absolutely right about the stakes and the danger. And in the middle of this insurrection, the fact that Tommy Tuberville had already proven himself such a reliable participant in the thwarting of democracy. I mean, shit, we knew he was gonna be bad, but supporting and helping to facilitate attempted coup? What a damn mess. Burn. 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 Hasn't he been on the job for like a week? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> yes, he has. <laughs> now to highlight people carrying the torch and changing sports culture, Amira, who is our glass ceiling shatterer of the week? The Boston Red Sox have hired Bianca Smith to be a minor league coach, making Smith the first black woman to coach in professional baseball. Uh, she's worked as an assistant coach and hitting coach at Carroll University in Wisconsin since 2018, and she will be based at the Red Sox Players Development City facility in Fort Myers, Florida, working primarily with position players. Congratulations to you, Bianca. 
Lindsay, please tell us about our You Tried It of the week. Four female swimmers at Iowa have won a preliminary injunction against their school, saving their swim team in all women's sports from being cut during the 2021-2022 school year. The judge's written order orders the university to maintain all its women's intercollegiate athletics teams until a full trial can be held on the merits of the case and to continue to provide these teams with full funding and staffing. I have our trio of the week. FIFA Referees Committee has named Club World Cup in Qatar 2021 officials, and three women, Adina Alves-Batista, Esther Stobley, and Claudia Umpierrez, are part of that squad. Shireen, who is our We Love to See It of the week? We're very excited to learn about a new women and girls boxing program in Gaza, Palestine, that has as many as 45 female boxers ranging from the ages of 7 to 21. Rima Abu Rahma is a 22-year-old boxer on the team, told Dave Zarin at The Nation, I love boxing because it's beautiful, wonderful hobby, and also for self-defense, and it helps to release negative energy. And she hopes to, quote, compete in an international competition and become an international player and raise the name of Palestine internationally, end quote. Can I get a drum roll, please? All right, Brenda, who are our torchbearers of the week? Brazilian soccer legend Marta and her Orlando Pride teammate Tony Presley announced their engagement this past week. Marta has never publicly disclosed in all of these years, and so it's a very big deal in Brazil and in all of our hearts that Marta's getting married. Marta, please invite Bernadette all down to your wedding. Thanks. Please, please. <laughs> all right. What is good, y'all? Shireen, what is good with you in 2021? Um, Cobra Kai came out. I'm very excited about that. Um, I also wanted to say it's my birthday month, in case you didn't know, which I know you knew, and I need to remind. That is brand new information. Thank you so much. (laughs) And since none of you can see us, Shireen is literally wearing a little party tiara. Like, it says the words party on it. She's been wearing it for this full recording. In purple glitter because I love it. I also uh, saw Bridgerton and I have so many thoughts, but I've just been tweeting about the rebellion coming up, trying to take the period piece queenship away from Kara Knightley, not going to have that shit. So, uh, and I do believe I have Ms. Jessica Luther's full support on this. Um, you do. I'm also going to say this. My teammates already know this because I tell them everything. I roasted a duck yesterday and it was the shit. It was the best fucking thing. If you haven't roasted a duck, Please roast a duck. It was just beautiful. Brenda's trying not to gag. It was just lovely. I'd never done my own Peking duck before. And my best friend, Erin, came over. We had to postpone Christmas dinner because for obvious reasons, my family had to isolate and quarantine. So this was sort of like our Christmas dinner. And I wore my new sequined red pants. They're beautiful. You all in this group will be getting a photo. But they were exquisite. So sequin pants, roasted duck, Cobra Kai, and my birthday. <laughs> Brenda. Uh, so I, I guess it starts with something that's bad for me, which is student evaluations in a Zoom semester, which were not the kindest to your girl mm-hmm. out here. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it led me down this path that was really good, which was remembering that my very favorite all-time high school teacher, Mr. Fox, William Fox, who's out there somewhere um, in South Carolina, hopefully enjoying his retirement, a lot of people didn't like him. And I loved him. And then that also made me rewatch some of To Sir With Love with Sidney Poitier, which makes me cry every time. And then I, I thought, well, I mean, this did have an upside. So what's good in my week is going down the Sidney Poitier rabbit hole, I guess. And Mr. Fox. Hi, Mr. Fox. Oh, I love that. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed Bridgerton. And if anyone wants to talk about it, I'm happy to do that. I also loved Cobra Kai Season 3. So I... Um, second that from Shireen and I will say for Christmas Aaron bought me an air fryer and it's too big for our kitchen we have a very small kitchen so I was feeling a lot of feelings about having yet another appliance that I had to find (laughs) space for but I love this thing it makes the best bacon ever tater tots out of the freezer are so good I've made chicken fingers I made yeast donuts I roasted Brussels sprouts in that sucker Last weekend, I did roasted potatoes and onion and pepper for a breakfast hash, and it did it in 15 minutes. It was perfect. So I'm pretty much in love with this thing. Oh, yeah, I made some meatballs this week, did them up in the air fryer. That thing is like magic. So I'm not quite as annoyed as I was when I first opened it and saw how big it was. So um, my air fryer has been good to me. Uh, Lindsay, what about you? Um, I actually wrote this before every before all Wednesday got together, but I'm going to bring it because rethinking about it made me laugh, which was when we found out that Warnock won, he was on The View the next morning, Wednesday morning. So before, you know, everything. And there is this meme going around of like on Zoom, like all of the co-hosts for The View, like beaming. And then right under Raphael Warnock, who's also beaming, is Megan McCain just making like <laughs> the biggest like frowny face and bitch face. And she was just so pressed. And I don't know why it made me laugh so much, but it just really did. It was just like... Uh, fuck you, Megan Think, McCain. Thinking of, yeah, uh, thinking of all the people like her that are frowny face. Right, just like made feeling. me happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just like everyone around her experiencing like pure joy. Um, you know, other than that, my life is pretty. I'm just still getting settled into the condo, getting back into work mode. And I hung some pictures and that's good. There's some things on my walls now. So, yeah, I think for me, it's just continuing the process. What's good is just continuing the process of being settled. And I would say a a week to get back on a good week to get back on track is not really a week where an insurrection happens. So I'm hoping that next week uh, we'll be a little bit more productive. (laughs) Oh, shit. You just jinxed the hell out of us, Lynn. Okay. (laughs) Amira, what's good with you? Um, Bridgerton. Which... I actually was able to escape into, mostly because of the black actors. Multiple times. Multiple times. I've watched it three times, and I've read seven out of the eight books and formed a personal book club with Jessica, which is mostly texting her at three in the morning all of my thoughts and research. And I have no interest in talking about it and no interest in the discourse. And the only people I ever care about besides Jessica thinking about Bridgerton is uh, Patricia Matthews, who has a great review in LA Review of Books, basically black women um, who specialize in this area. And other than that, it's just been something that I can actually, like, it's the one week a year where I can read like fictional books. So I did a book a day during that week off. I have one more, which is annoying me already. So I'm like 
you know, uh, and, you know, insurrections are distracting. And also, um, I didn't talk to you guys over the new year, but so Peloton has a annual challenge, which runs from January to December and they give you badges up to 10,000 minutes. Now I obviously got my Peloton halfway through the year, but at the beginning of December, I noticed I was only a couple hundred minutes from that mark. And I finished the year with almost 12,000 minutes of exercise with that platform. And so that was just like a personal achievement for me. And I feel very proud of that. That's incredible. And apparently I did 26 hours of yoga, which if you know me is wild because I detest yoga. I'm not, I'm too ADHD. But Chelsea and her beautiful playlists including the one playlist that I listen to every time white supremacy has me all the way fucked up, which I've probably done that restorative yoga practice like six times has gotten me to 26 hours over the last six months, which is wild. Wow. And I'm just going to add that it's snowing outside in Austin, Texas. And I want to add that Jess has now convinced me to whenever I earn more money again to buy an air fryer because I've been thinking about it. And now you, you've made me win. So I feel subscribe to Power Play so I can buy an air fryer every once I do feel evangelical. <laughs> can you fry like a Mars bar in that thing? You can do everything. I do. I, I do. Uh, yeah, we because so the kids did Oreos. Yeah. I don't know more yeah, like with the chocolate because I feel like that might be yeah, I'm wondering. too messy. Amir, um, did they put it in batter when they fried it or did they just put the Oreos in the? I don't know what Samari does in the kitchen. I wonder what it would do with a toaster strudel. It would be great. I've made so toast in there. I love, I love that made, we're talking um, about this, by the way. I know. This has been really long. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I've just done straight up toast in that thing. Okay. It's amazing. I know that, in like in that. Ramadan, everybody raves about it because it takes away the oil and the deep frying of the samosas that most South Asians and, like, quite frankly, yeah. so many Muslims have, is like sambusa or whatever, as part of their like iftar. But I don't know. It's not worth it for me to keep it just for that. Maybe you can put a duck in it, Shireen, like a small duck. <laughs> yes, yes, I can. A baby I duck. Could, I could put do quail. Um, I'm gonna make quails. <laughs> oh. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get no. my air fryer back. I gave it to my mom. All right. Yes. You're an enabler, Brenda. We'll see. So this week, we are watching men's college ball, NBA, NFL playoffs, I guess. They're still kind of going on. Cross your fingers. Everything with COVID. Uh, That's also true for women's basketball, but we care a lot more (laughs) about that. Uh, If you also care about it, Thursday, January 14th, number 11, Oregon versus number 7, Arizona with 7 p.m. Eastern. Sunday, we have two big games. That's January 17th. Number 8, Texas A&M will take on number 14, Mississippi State at 1 p.m. And then the big one is NC State, number 3 versus number 2, Louisville at 3 p.m. that day. And then this week, Brenda tells me that we have a Brazil versus Argentina bonanza. Is that correct, Brenda? Yes, we sure do. The best men's club competition in the world takes place with the Copa Libertadores Palmeiras versus River Plate on January 12th and Santos versus Boca Juniors on the 13th. And the NWSL draft is this week and WNBA free agency is coming. We'll be paying attention to both. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. On behalf of all of us here, burn on and not out. This episode was produced by Martin Kessler. Shelby Weldon does our website episode transcripts and social media. Tressa Versteeg produces our interview episodes, which drop on Thursdays. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, 
You can do so on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and tune in all of the places. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. From there, you can email us directly or go shopping at our Teespring store. It's the perfect time of year to pick up a hoodie or a blanket. As always, an evergreen thank you to our patrons for your support. It means the world. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown. Come on.